You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris, and today we'll be talking about contemporary silent cinema, or the little there is of it. And to ask the time-old question, are silent films simply the result of unfortunate technical limitations, which the medium luckily overcame, or are they a unique style with their own merits? History certainly seems to think it's the former. The first talkie, The Jazz Singer, was released in 1927, and the industry rushed to abandon silent cinema as a concept. In many cases, they went as far as to just burn the negatives. By 1930, three years later, silent cinema was essentially gone in the US, with the exception of a few stragglers and, of course, Charlie Chaplin. Within three years, silent cinema was thrown in the bin. The most stilted, poorly recorded sound films were applauded. One even won Best Picture. Any sound was essentially better than no sound. The visually creative, dreamlike worlds of masters like Murnau were traded in for soundstage fare, with cameras that could barely move. Japan lasted longer than most thanks to their popular live-person narrators, but they still made their last silent in 1939, and with that, silent cinema was gone for decades. To the casual observer, there has really just been two major silent films since. The obviously named silent movie from 1976, a wacky comedy in standard Mel Brooks fashion, just a loving parody of silent aesthetics, though shot in color. And, and quite ironically, having the plot revolve around the impossibility of getting funding for a silent film. And then, more than 30 years later, the Academy Award-winning The Artist from 2011, which started off as a small-scale French love letter to classic silent Hollywood, and ended up taking the world with storm. I mean, you could say that silent movie was to classic silent Hollywood comedies, what the artist is to classic silent Hollywood dramas. And both in many ways served not as continuations, but as bookends. They were not intended to be revivals. They were intended to share with what was and place them in a sealed off box. And yet there are more contemporary silent films. In this episode, we'll go through the two previous dimension films as well, of course. But there's also Yuha, The Call of Cthulhu, Brand Upon the Brain, Dr. Plonk, L'Antenna, and of course, Blanca Nieves. And we'll go through them in chronological order. But most of all, we'll ask the right and probably also some of the wrong questions. As usual, I'm joined by two wonderful co-hosts. And I'll just start by asking them the before-mentioned question. Is there any relevance or validity to making silent cinema today? And if so, what? And we can start with Tom. Tom here from England. Really looking forward to discussing contemporary silent cinema today. I've spent most of this week re-watching all of the silent films that Chris mentioned in the introduction, and it's been great to revisit these with a fresh pair of eyes. Um, I think there is a market for contemporary silent cinema. It's a shame that there haven't been as many films as I would have liked to have seen, but it is good that we've had quite a few directors have been willing to take a punt on a area of cinema that has perhaps been abandoned for far too long. Hi, it is Sol from Australia. 
I have also, like Tom, spent the past couple of weeks going through and looking at some of these contemporary silent films again and watching some of them for the first time. And it's an art form that I really like. I really actually love like 20 silent films. And it's really interesting to see more recent cinema that sort of takes on that mode of having title cards and a very image heavy focus. And while some of these more modern films take that mode and yet do completely different, interesting and challenging things with it, with more advanced editing and camera work than was around in the 1920s. I'm very interested in discussing this even further with my co-host today. So agreeing that there is validity to still making silent films today, why do you think it took so long all the way until the mid-70s before there was a proper silent film again? I think that it's a big risk for any filmmaker to make a silent picture. There's the uncertainty of whether the market is still there, whether modern audiences more attuned to films of sound will be put off by the prospect of a silent cinema. And perhaps this is why not many filmmakers have, have taken the leap to try and do something new with the uh, classic method. I agree with Tom that getting financial support and backing to make a silent film would have been really challenging. Especially if you look at the 1970s when Silent Movie came out. I mean, it was only 1967 or 1968 that you suddenly had more than 50% of films in colour rather than black and white. People were going out there, they were wanting to see colour films, they were wanting to see widescreen films. And I think having the uh, market to see a silent film is really tricky. I haven't looked into the financials of Silent Movie, but I know at the time Mel Brooks was writing on the success of Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. And of course, he did Young Frankenstein in black and white, which might have helped get him a bit more success, saying, well, I did this black and white movie and it got Oscar nominations. Maybe you can finance me to do a silent film. But I think, yeah, since then, even though we've had filmmakers since the 1970s do silent films, uh, like The Artist was never designed to win Oscars. Film directors like uh, Rolf de Heer, who did Dr. Plonk, not a very big time filmmaker. So I still don't think we're going to be seeing studio films doing it. I can't really guarantee there's the market out there for it. But obviously, it was really interesting that Mel Brooks managed to get the uh, financing to do it in the 1970s. It is interesting that even with, say, the European art market and all of the craziness going on in Japan with the Art Studio Guild, that nobody really tried to make silent films because when you hear interviews with a lot of directors, they will all talk about how Murnau or Lang inspired them, but still nobody really wants to try it. Most of the filmmakers looking to break ground with the films that they make and therefore they're looking to the future and new techniques rather than looking to the past to, to build on what came before them. It's very interesting, Chris, how you mentioned Fritz Lang because, of course, you've got uh, Goddard's Contempt and in there Fritz Lang has a cameo playing himself. Somebody comes up to him and says, oh, you know, I really like this uh, Western, I think it was Rancho Notorious, and Fritz Lang is like, oh, I prefer M. Even though they're taking him as an influence, still not making films that are in the style of the ones that influenced them when they were getting into cinema themselves. Really good point, actually, that the whole of them are always trying to do something new instead of playing around with all their techniques. 
which is almost a little strange. And it wasn't really until Madden started to mix things together that we got there. But let's not get too ahead of ourselves there. There were, of course, a few films, even a few relatively major films, that had some silent elements. I'm thinking, of course, about Tom Jones, the 1963 Oscar winner, or probably 1964 winner, which has the opening scene shot as a silent. And then, just two years later, one of these more creative French artists we were talking about, Pierre Tars, actually did a film that was half a silent. Yo-Yo, which is just fantastic, especially the first half. It's as stylish, clever, beautiful as the artist. It's such beautiful homage style to all of the greats, from Max Linder to Charlie Chaplin, etc., that I almost felt so sad at the halfway point when that little title card comes up and says, and then came sound. I agree that Yo-Yo is a fantastic film. It's very beautiful. It's very lusciously filmed in black and white. And even when the sound part comes up, I was still very enamored with it the whole time. Another film that I thought I'd mention, it's much more recent, but of course, Pedro Almodovar's to her as a silent film in there or silent film within the film, which isn't a real silent film. And of course, nothing like that would ever pass the senses. I don't think even the pre-code days you have this man going into his lover's vagina when he shrinks down to the size of an ant or a pin. But it's just interesting how silent cinema makes its way into other films today. That's such a great example as well, because I, I think that silent scene or that, that dream inside of Talk to Her was the first time I was exposed to a modern-day silent. And probably the first time I also thought, wow, they could really do this today and do something they couldn't do before. Back to the history leading up to silent movie, there were, of course, films that were shot without sound. But I don't think we would be talking about these films because they were not in any way trying to continue the silent cinema aesthetic, if you will. They weren't building on this at all. They were simply various forms of experimental films that happen to not have sound. I'm thinking, of course, of, say, a large chunk of Andy Warhol films. I'm thinking of, you know, Kiss, Empire, etc. Like Stan Brackish, Dogstar Man. I don't think these are films we would really think about, say, contemporary silent films. I think you're actually quite lucky if those Warhol films don't have sound in them because the sound in Lonesome Cowboys, at least, is absolutely shocking. It's shocking for a reason, but it sort of makes me yearn for watching my next Warhol film to be a film without any sound in it at all. Although, of course, there are some of these experimental films that do kind of toy the line between building on silent cinema and simply being a film without sound. We sparred a little bit about this before the podcast, so, but at sea from 2007 by Peter Hutton, which is essentially just a collection of really beautiful visuals, but with no sound whatsoever. And that's also an interesting contrast to silent films themselves, as they traditionally were, because, of course, silent films were never intended to be silent. There were always music accompanying them, if not from a band, from a live pianist, etc. I'm actually not a big fan of Atsy myself. I didn't like the fact that there wasn't any sound in there. I thought it really lacked something like a James Benning film where you actually have a little bit of atmosphere going on, some sounds in the background to sort of 
tune you in and keep you on a level with what's happening. Something which might be another example of a film or experimental film that sort of goes to silent film dynamics would be a film called The Dead Man from 1987, only about 20 or 30 minutes long. It's sort of a bit of a soft core film in a way, and it has got some sound in it, but it's also got title cards throughout, and the whole thing's in black and white. And it's just really interesting having that sort of merge in there between title cards and some dialogue that's spoken out loud while at the same time trying to be a bit of an erotica film also at the same time. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll get back to that when we bring up uh, Guy Madden a little bit later. And just to go very quickly back to the scene before we continue the silent movie, I actually think it worked, but I, I can really see why it didn't. It, it's a film you kind of have to be both in the right mindset of, and maybe even have the right mood around it to really enjoy, since it just is no sound. You're just seeing these images. It's one of those films you can probably just relax, calm yourself down to, and enjoy something beautiful. But it can also, I suppose, be very dreary and dull, depending on so many different factors. And I know for a fact that many people are doing exactly what they're doing with a lot of silent films missing scores today, which is add their own soundtrack to it, which is just pick something, say, instrumental, pick some classic music, anything else, and throw them on top. And in that way, I suppose, at sea really relived the silent cinema treatment. But with all of this out of the way, let's go back to the films that actually honor silent cinema techniques and either pay homage to them or bring them along. Let's discuss silent movie. And it's really interesting that out of all of the films we'll be discussing today, this is the only one that's actually in color. Mal Brooks's silent movie is a great comedy. It's heavy on the slapstick and visual comedy, which often the, the only way to go with silent cinema. And the thing about this is that visual comedy is timeless. So audiences of all ages, generations are going to get some fun out of it. Now, I did like how the, the title cards didn't always tie in with the dialogue that was mouthed by the actors. And there's one part where you can see Mal Brooks swearing at one of his actors, but the title card says something completely differently. And it's, it's these subtle elements, if you pay attention, that you pick up on that really bring the film to life. I also love how it, it ties in with the world of cinema, films that you know, tap into a storytelling method that kind of resonates with film fans because it appeals to people who appreciate the medium. You know, you have films such as Singing in the Rain, Cinema Parody, So the Fall, also The Artist as well. And when they tie in with the world of cinema, I think it, it resonates in, in a way that film fans can really appreciate. Today I sat down and I re-watched Silent Movie it's a film I've seen three times now over the years, and it's got to the point where I think it actually might be a Brooks's finest film. It's very interesting that it's almost a film about its own inception, with it with the plot being about Mel Brooks or Mel Fun, as this character's called in there, trying to finance his own silent film, trying to get approval for it, trying to recruit stars. And I know obviously a lot of the overtop things that happen in there wouldn't have happened when they're trying to sign up James Kahn or trying to sign up Paul Newman to do the film. But still really like the fact that it's about the making of it and trying to get a silent film into production. The title cards, that's very interesting, Tom. 
haven't picked up on the words not matching up to uh, title cards, but there's a very interesting technique. There's lots of very small details in Silent Movie, which I like also, like the different stories on the newspapers that are thrown at the uh, newspaper vendor. So you've got the main story about who's being recruited as well as the side story about what's happened to the news vendor at the same time. Quite a few of the throwaway gags, like an out-of-control machine, actually end up coming in and forming a pivotal part of the plot. But I thought it was just very interesting just the fact that you're making a silent film about making a silent film. So it's all about its own inception, which I really like and which I find really interesting. I completely forgot to mention all the excellent cameos that were built into the storyline. I had no idea from the start that, you know, Mal Brooks was going to use such well-known actors. and as more and more kept appearing with some brilliant send-ups of themselves. I, I was very amused, uh, in particular, Burt Reynolds. I think he was one of the first ones that appeared. And it's just brilliant to see these great actors, you know, taking a, a light-hearted view of their own careers. Yeah, you are, you're right, Tom. Burt Reynolds is the first one who they recruit. And it is very interesting having those big-name stars and them doing, you know, a few silly things and enjoying being there. Obviously, Anne Bancroft is married to Mel Brooks or was married, so her involvement isn't too surprising, but still what she gets to do with her rolling her eyes different ways, she actually proves herself to be quite a funny actress. Whereas when you think of Anne Bancroft, you usually think of the miracle worker or the graduate. You don't really think of her for comedy. And even saying with Paul Newman, uh, you don't really tend to think of him, number one, as a comedy actor. Even the comedies that he's been in, like The Sting, he usually has a very serious type of role in there. So it was really good to see him and also involved in some sort of leg accident or his legs in a cast in Silent Movie. And he's near this motor car of some sort, which I think is a reference to the film Winning, which I haven't seen, but it's a film which Paul Newman did in the late 1960s. So just what you're saying about the uh, characters spoofing or playing up on their own images, I think, yeah, it was a really interesting idea and a really interesting angle for the film to take. So, so I guess... The key question here is, how did silent movie actually work as a silent comedy? I think I think as a silent comedy, I think silent movie is absolutely hilarious. And that's probably one of, why it's one of my favorite Mel Brooks films. What it does, by being self-reflexive, is really clever and really intelligent. But it's also extremely funny. And a lot of it comes down to the acting and the three main performers. And you've got ones like Dom Deleuze. Body filming. They're not necessarily known for being very subtle actors, but it's actually all very strained performances because they're not talking. So everything has to be with their gestures. And just a lot of things like the way the three of them would walk in synchrony together, basically almost walking on top of each other's feet, found to be extremely funny. And just the uh, physical style of things. And Marty Feldman's extremely acrobatic in there. He's doing backflips, so it's from a distance. So maybe it's a stunt performer doing that. It's very physical, just like the best of slapstick is. Or there's a moment in there where the studio executive says, you know, you can't make a silent film these days, slapstick is dead. And then suddenly he falls and slides out from underneath his desk. So all of that's really funny while also being about the silent film industry and how silent comedies have evolved. I think you've summed it up really nicely there, Sol. It does work excellently as a silent comedy. Um, as you said, the three main actors are brilliant. And not always just the visual gags that are funny, but as you said, the expressions and the gestures of the actors involved 
sometimes be just as funny as the actual visual jokes themselves when you see them react and you see the expressions on it just adds an extra layer to and the fact that it you know sends up the creation of of silent movies in the past as well how things have evolved i think it's a great film and it's nice to see that the first silent film for after such a long gap was such a brilliant one and it's just a shame that again it took a while for other filmmakers to kind of follow in in Malbrook's steps he did such a brilliant job perhaps people were intimidated or concerned that anything that they created could not live up to what he had made with silent movie yeah i think you guys are pretty spot on i'm not as fond of silent movie as both of you but it really brings back the same kind of joy of slapstick comedy and it really does work on that level so again as i mentioned in my intro it does work as a bit of a bookend to silent films and silent comedies it doesn't really create something that lives on its own it is like the later artist essentially a homage a memory a this happened now it doesn't happen anymore. And this is, in a way, by just calling itself silent movie, it essentially just said, this is the silent movie, this is the comedy about silent movies, summing them all up. And that likely also explains why there just weren't any copycats and why it took such a long time before we really started to see silent movies come back in any way. Now, I think the first time that the techniques we've been starting to be used were at the beginning of Guy Madden's career. Now, almost all of his films play around with sound and intertitles at the same time, but at, at, which I think started around Archangel in 1990. And we see this slow evolution with intertitles as a gag, as a comedy, as part of a, his dreamlike style. But, of course, it took a very long time before he made his very first actual silent films other people had done so before and the very first actual silent film since silent movie was by another really well-known really well-established art house darling the finnish director aki karismaki with yuha read that karismaki decided to make yuha silent when he realised that Andre Wilms, who was his first choice for the villain of the piece, didn't actually speak any Finnish. And I think that's a great story, if true, because it you know, kind of establishes the fact that people weren't out to make silent films. And in fact, this one may have just ended up silent unintentionally. Technically, it's commendable. It does a great job at imitating silent cinema. But the storyline and cinematography are nothing particularly remarkable, and it also lacks the usual black humour found in his, his pictures. But it is still a worthwhile entry into the contemporary world of, of silent cinema, and even if it is quite a, a bleak and, and tragic outing, there are a lot of notable shots in it that, that do stand out in my mind. I somewhat disagree on that. It really plays proper tribute to classic silent films because it, it really just looks like a Korosmoki film just without sound. There, there's no change in the way he uses his black and white cinematography. Like if you look at his earlier black and white films like Hamlet Going Into Business or even just the ones he was doing around the same time, 
he shoots things exactly the same way. He uses visual humor exactly the same way. The only real throwbacks are a few scenes of, say, hyper-emotion, which, like the ending where they dance to show how happy they are, just a few little things like that, that almost comes off as a little bit silly, but that's also the way that charismatic films often work, in that they take these really somber elements and pour them off with something slightly odder, slightly sillier. I see where you're coming from there, Chris. You've made some good points there, and it is slightly odd and, and surreal in places. I think that the music that Kerismarki uses is particularly jarring, and perhaps that doesn't chime with the silent cinema because that kind of places it almost in contemporary times because it's music that you wouldn't have expected to hear when watching silent film from, say, the 20s. It's also kind of set in a time you don't really, like, you don't really know what time Yuha is set in. I think a lot of people are guessing 50s or 60s because obviously you have more modern cars, you have more modern kitchens. But it could even be modern day. It could be 1998. Technically, it's really hard to tell when this film is set. I was also questioning the setting of the film when I was watching it. Again, like you looking at the cars and the gun that was used and also noticing things like in the kitchen what looked like it could potentially be some kind of microwave or something I don't know if it was but I was on the lookout for things to try and place it and, and establish that time and I suppose Kozmarki's done a, a good job of kind of making it feel like it, it you know it could be from a number of eras depending on your perspective. To sum up you I think that if you love Kozmarki you will love this film it's, it's not like it, it uses the same kind of humor it uses the same kind of visuals and it if you haven't really been that interested in silent films before, it, it should still probably work for you, though it might not inspire you to seek out more. I would agree with that assessment, Chris. Taken in isolation, you know, it, as I said, it is a commendable piece of work, but for me, it would just seem to be lacking in that edge to really make it stand out. Whereas when I'm viewing it in comparison to the other contemporary silent uh, films, and this is perhaps the one that I enjoyed the least, it's not to say I didn't enjoy it, but it just, for me, lacked the kind of imagination or inventiveness that we're going to discuss about the other films. Yeah, I agree. But then again, I've never actually been a major Kurosaki fan either. It's just something about his humour that doesn't quite work for me. Just one final uh, point about the film, like, like to showcase this type of humour he uses. Like, there's a flashback of Yuha and his wife's wedding, and like part of the comedy is that one of the guests are really disconnected. He shakes his hand, the hand kind of falls down, and there's a wishful gag in the back, which isn't really a wishful gag, but it's just a pastor smoking. There's just all of these little quirky things that I suppose an actual Chorus Mocking fan will really love and really enjoy, but which has never really worked for me. But I do think, taking this over to the next film, The Call of Cthulhu, that there's a really, really big distinction between them. Call of Cthulhu came out in 2005, six years later, and these two films are almost night and day. Yuha is essentially just a Korismaki film, but Call of Cthulhu is in every way attempting to be silent, attempting to place itself within that traditional aesthetic, even going as far as to try to make itself look older than it was. And 
In many ways, it manages. And it also manages to be really charming because it shares many of the technical limitations. Because one thing many people don't necessarily know when watching this film is that it is an extremely low-budget production. This is essentially a student film or an amateur film by people who love the work of H.P. Lovecraft coming together to craft this film on a U.S. Congress grant. And the fact that they managed to build it into the silent film that it is and to manage to get to blow up the way it did, at least in the cinephile community, it's really terribly impressive. Film adaptations of Lovecraft's work always seem to go lagging developmental. I think it was Guillermo del Toro who was working on trying to bring one of the novels to life recently and unfortunately that failed. And it's great to see the fact that on such a small budget managed to make such a brilliantly creative adaptation of one of Lovecraft's works. They managed to build up this great notion of dread and suspense and there's a strong use of shadows and lighting, which are kind of backs to Minow's work and the German expressionism. For me, it does seem to cram in perhaps too many storylines, perhaps overambitious in this regard, but you can overlook that and, and forgive it because it is a brilliant, brilliantly inventive piece of work and there's some impressive stop-motion animation when you get towards the end of the film and you see the horrors that they've created. And I was really impressed with it. And I love that you bring up the German expressionism too, because in the, I'm not going to say climax, I don't want to spoil anything of the film, but the amount of practical effects they managed to bring into this film, the amount of horror-inducing elements in, in that climax is just incredible. I just can't believe they managed to, one, do that, and two, managed to make it look as good as it did. And this is probably where the silent film aesthetics work the best, because by shooting in black and white, by trying to make it look authentically old, these not-as-great graphics really manage to shine and work regardless. That's a great point, Chris. And I suppose in that regard, the budgetary limitations kind of helped the film because they're trying to you know hide certain things make them seem darker so as not to reveal the setbacks of the effects that they use and it it, it makes it more mysterious more creepy. you know some of the set design as well is is incredible and it, it really is impressive for for a low budget film i think the silent film aesthetics also it's so easy to adapt something that could have been so convoluted. I mean, in so many points in this film, there's a story within a story within a story within a story, and it just works so well. Even, even though, again, certain elements are clearly low budget, clearly a little bit campy, but because of the love you see put into this film, it still works. Definitely, and it, it just adds to the kind of charm and, and the feel of, of the picture. You can tell that... There's a lot of heart that's been put into this and they've done a lot of work on here that, that is really quite impressive and, and quite innovative, whereas still looking back to the silent films that influenced it and borrowing heavily, but bringing their own uh, flair to things as well. And the main takeaway from this is that you should really see The Call of Cthulhu. And just to be clear, this is a film that's under 50 minutes long and it still managed to feel massive and epic. So please do see it. 
And, and the next film here now is one of my all-time favorite films, Guy Madden's Brand Upon the Brain. And we mentioned earlier that Madden throughout his entire career in some way worked in all of these Thailand cinema techniques, essentially creating a dreamlike alternative world with the strengths, but also the shortcomings, and especially the shortcomings of 1920s and 1930s cinema, and mending them into his own unique expression and style, often with dialogue, narration, and intertitles intermangling into comedic, absurd, I would be tempted to say poetry, but it's a really funny, really bizarre, really raunchy sometimes form of introspective comedy. And this is taken to its most heightened extremes in Brand Upon the Brain. And there's a reason why I would call this Guy Madden's very first silent, despite the fact that narration is such a big part of it, and despite the fact that it's so similar to some of his earlier films, including the film he did just, I believe, three years earlier, Covers Bend the Knee, which was also essentially a silent film, but with narration intertwined. What's the difference? Well, the way it was shot, completed, and performed. You see, there's not just one narrator. The film toured, not only with a full orchestra, but various narrators, including Isabella Rossellini, Crispin Glover, and the legendary Eli Wallach. Mad himself also coming to narrate. And when I rewatched this film this week, I had nine narrators, including live sessions. And it was so fun to be able to choose between them and get unique experiences every single time. And each of them bringing something different to the story. So I just want to say that this is one of my favorite films, and I would really love to talk more about it, but I need to bring it on to my co-hosts. I love how Madden uses the limitations of the aesthetics of silent cinema to his advantage in Band Upon the Brain. He creates this hauntingly beautiful, surreal nightmare with an imaginative storyline that's very dark in places, almost Lynchian. You know, you can easily make some comparisons to, to a Razorhead. He uses these frenetic editing techniques that are very adventurous and it uh, moves along at a brisk pace and it almost feels like you're being brainwashed by the barrage of experimental techniques used to tell the story. I listened to it with the Rossellini narrative and I was kind of curious to whether it would make sense without the narrative. I was, you know, taking the cues from the title cards and I'd love to rewatch it. Um, from that perspective as well, to see if it would work as a science film with just a score and no narration. But uh, I really enjoyed it. I've not seen many of Madden's films, but I'm very excited to see more uh, after my first experience with Brand Upon the Brain. I haven't seen Brand Upon the Brain. I do love the title, though. And I actually love the title of most of Madden's films, uh, whether it be The Saddest Music in the World, Coward Benzonese. They've always got very creative titles, which are really interesting. But in terms of actually watching Madden films, I did watch Archangel fairly early on, so by film-going journey. And at that point, I guess I hadn't seen many silent or black-and-white films, and they didn't really do much for me. I did, a few years ago, sit down and watch The Forbidden Room, and that really did not drive with me at all. It was a bit of an up-and-down ride for me. There were some you know, creative parts in there, a song about Derriere's, 
but a lot of it just felt really random and just like a random assortment of stuff without much reason or logic behind it. And I guess my experience with The Forbidden Room has put me off exploring more of Guy Madden's films. But obviously, because I really like contemporary silent films, maybe something like Brand Upon the Brain would be something good for me to try and reintroduce myself to Madden. Though of the films that he's made that I haven't seen, probably Keyhole fascinates me the most because that one's going to be the least like his other films. You really should be put off Madden's earlier films because of Forbidden Room. I really like The Forbidden Room as well, but it is really different. And it's also the first film he did with Johnson and he started working more with digital cameras. And it gives them a different look. It doesn't look as great as it used to. And I would also like to add that to The Forbidden Room, this was actually not originally intended to be a film the way it is. Madden wanted to create a new, bizarre, experimental experience. So he shot a large amount of separate clips and essentially created a random number generator so that people could create their own films. This was a major project two years before Forbidden Room came out. And that's why when it's then intermixed and made into a broader, bizarre film, it's not that way at all. Taking this back to Brand Upon the Brain, there are some similarities. Brand Upon the Brain is all over the place in terms of its narrative structure and its crazier elements, but it's still a consistent story, a bizarre, poetical, comedical story of Guy Madden himself growing up on an island with an overprotective mother running some kind of weird, bizarre science experience on orphanage kids and it's essentially just it's called brand upon the brain a remembrance in 12 chapters it's set up in 12 chapters and each of them just gets more and more and more bizarre it actually sounds really cool chris uh, maybe i should check out brand upon the brain i do really like the idea of experimenting on kids not that i would advocate that myself it just really opens up the possibilities for what film is capable of doing you definitely need to watch it when you can, Sol. I had similar impressions of The Forbidden Room to you. I thought it was an interesting experimental work that perhaps didn't work as a cohesive narrative. And whereas the narrative in Brand Upon the Brain, as, as Chris says, it's strange and bizarre and, and surreal and takes you to some weird and wonderful places, it's more coherent and it is kind of like a magical dark fantasy where there's lots going on and some of the reactions that uh, Madden gets from his actors as well are excellent at just portraying the emotion. And even though it's a strange ride, it is, is quite an emotional journey as well. So hopefully you'll give it a go and enjoy it as much as I did. I'd just like to cut in on what uh, Tom mentioned earlier with trying to watch Brand Upon the Brain without the narration. I think that would be really interesting. I'd also like to say that live narration, the fact that there's a narrator along with a script, bring something really special into the film because the way the narrator interacts with the intertitles and vice versa is really interesting because in many ways they'll be echoing each other. For instance, the narrator might say something like the past, the past, the past. And either sometime before that or sometime later, the intertitle, the past, will have been shown as well. Or they'll be even coming in around the same time, sending this bizarre, surreal echo. So it it is so many interesting ways that Madden works with narration and intertitle to create this kind of bizarre, comedic, 
mystical, gothic comedy. But to take this on to a film that does almost the exact opposite, that strips down what contemporary silent cinema can be to its simplest components, Rolf de Heer's Dr. Plunk. A film that, unlike the previous films we're talking about here, essentially takes its inspiration not from the silent cinema of the 1920s, but from the silent cinema of the 1900s and 1910s, creating a completely, completely different experience than any of the other films we'll be discussing in this podcast. Dr. Plonk is a film that I first saw in 2008 a few years ago and since then I've re-watched it two times over the years including just this week and it's a film that I've always found to be very dynamic and really interesting it's from Rolf de Heer which as an Australian I would say is our greatest film director he is probably best known for films like The Tracker or Bad Boy Bubbies but he's also done a lot of really great experimental and out there films like The Quiet Room and Alexander's Project Anyway, Dr. Plonk was a film which I actually almost saw in cinemas, but I was only playing at the Art House cinemas, so I didn't end up seeing it. When I came out and I saw it on DVD, I was very impressed with it because it really does mimic the style of the older films, like Chris said, from the 1900s and 1910s. But what it also does is that it creates a time travel film, but one that sort of genuinely works. The plot of it in a nutshell was about the scientist in 1907 who, somehow, that will be the end of the world in 100 years' time, so he just decides to time travel to the future. He builds a time machine, which is made out of wood and reminds me a lot of the uh, time machine in Prima, just because it's so basic. It's got like this like giant like jumping switchboard at the um, side of it, which programs it. And then when he goes into the uh, future... Uh, what he sees is the future of 2007. The way the film was made, I was watching it going, well, this could have been a film made in 1907, and you wouldn't really know the difference because it's actually shot on a hand-crank camera. Here, actually purposely got a camera built to shoot the film in. So when you're actually watching it, it sort of like plays with that sort of like flicker that you see with hand-crank cameras. It gives it a very genuine feel. Uh, what's also really interesting about the film is that as it progresses along and they go into the future, the cinema techniques actually become more adventurous. When Dr. Plonk's being pursued in the future, there's some tracking shots that are placed in front of him as he is driving towards the camera. There's some great low camera angle shots looking up as people are balancing on beams. And it's sort of like tracking that progress, whereas all the shots in the 1907 part or in the static way that you would see the very older silent films as being photographed. What's also really interesting about Dr. Plog is a lot of it's about the progression of watching films. The whole idea is that he goes into 2007 and he sees all these trailers for this film about the end of the world. He sees it on television. He has no idea what a television is. He has no idea why people are sitting in a living room and watching this box saying the end of the world is coming and not reacting and not doing anything. And it's a bit about the complacency that we've come with watching films where we're no longer wowed or impressed or shocked by any of that. And I think the film has a lot to say about what we are like as spectators with watching films. 
And one other point I'd like to make is what I think is really dynamic about the film is that Dr. Plogg's a really smart and intelligent man. And the whole idea is that he could be as smart as anyone. He could be as smart as Einstein, but still going into the future will always be mind-blowing. The next generation's technology will always be much more advanced and much more mind-blowing than anything that you might be able to comprehend or think you comprehend if you live in a generation earlier. The scene that you mentioned, Sol, where Dr. Plunk goes to the future and he sees how people are becoming trance by the television set is one of my favourites in the film. I love that, just how the people are sat there watching, completely oblivious to everything else around them. And I love the gags that revolve around the television set, like how when he tries to take television back to the past and it just fails miserably with that. And I think it is a great plot as well, the fact that it swings between the uh, 1900s silent films were, were, were just in their heyday and, and modern day as well and the, the difference in techniques that he uses. I had picked up on some of that but not all so it is brilliant to think that the director really paid close attention to the techniques when making this film and I also loved the inclusion of a sidekick dog as well who comes close to stealing the show in a number of scenes. And yeah, I had a, a lot of fun with this one. And it, it's great to see that whenever I watch Rolf to Hear film, they're always vastly different. He uses different techniques, different styles, and it makes for a unique experience. You never know quite what you're about to sit down and watch watching a to Hear Yes, I totally agree with that, Tom and Rolf to Hear. Uh, his best films are nothing at all like each other, and yet they're all very dynamic in different ways. He's always trying out different things. I've seen, I think, pretty much all of his films, except for one from the 1990s and maybe one from the 2000s, and they're all very different, and he's always trying to do something different in there. Like the whole setup of Alexander's project about this one guy sitting down and watch a videotape ends up being a much more intense experience than you could possibly imagine. Bad Boy Bubby is just the whole idea of the Oedipal Complex to a completely different level. And then you get things like The Tracker, which is more a series of music videos than an actual plot. And you get films like Ten Canoes, which is filmed entirely in Aboriginal language. So yeah, De Heer's one of those directors who are always pushing the envelope, trying to do something different, which is why I think he's our country's greatest director. I think that's an interesting point about the hair too, because coming into this, I was just really surprised that it was the hair that was doing this. But given his history of trying so many different styles, it makes complete sense to me. And with that, I, I just want to go back to that hand-cranked camera and the way he makes this film look, because that is what really stands out here. You have the two components. And the first thing I just love is the way the 1907 scenes largely play with just that one soundstage exactly like Millet used to use. Like you have things being pushed together, magic being performed just by a cut and some smoke. It's all of these very simple cinematic tools of magic that Millet was doing in the 1900s. And the hair pulls it off so well. Then you have these outside scenes in the 1907, which clearly plays on a lot of early Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton films. You have the little car chases, etc., which are just taken straight out from later Buster Keaton films from the early 20s, like Dr. Jack. And you have all of these little gags about kicking people's behinds. Also, the cute looks from the assistants in the park, which are clearly taken directly from Chaplin. And it's just so much love for early silent cinema here. That's really a joy to watch. 
But then what I thought was most impressive is that by using this handcrank camera and shooting modern day life in 2007, he actually makes it work. Like this is not a 2007 we have ever seen before and are likely to ever see again. It genuinely looks and feels like a 1900s or 1910 film. Even you see police cars, SWAT coming in, it still has that aesthetic and it still works because of the techniques it's using and it's incredibly impressive. Dr. Plonk is perhaps one of the films out of all the silent contemporary ones that have watched that it is mostly to the techniques used in the heyday of, of silent cinema. And as Chris said, it's brilliant that he uses you know the old techniques such as smoke and pays homage to such great directors and, and artists from the silent area. Although it's perhaps not my favourite of those that I watched recently, it's an impressive piece of work that should definitely be sought out by anyone who enjoys contemporary silence. What Dr. Blanc does, which is really great, is the techniques and the childlike wonder in the earlier scenes and just taking the aesthetics of early silent cinema into the present. What probably is not as exciting is the basics of the story. There could have been a lot more development there, but it stays inside of probably what was done in 1907, 1910. Like what type of character development, etc. you had there. And it does so much with it, even taking this back to, say, early Buster Keaton films, etc. before his great works. Like this is essentially what you would be seeing. And it's charming, it's lovely, and it's a genuinely great film. Adding a slight disagreement to Tom, though, when he calls this the heyday of silent cinema, I, I would disagree there. Uh, I think that this is playing homage to the early days of silent cinema, and what I personally consider the heyday is towards the very end, when the medium had developed more, the camera was more free. And what makes Dr. Plum so interesting, of course, is that this camera is essentially always static. It's always playing within those earlier limitations that in many ways disappear at the end of the period. One thing that I'll just mention jumping in there is that yes, I agree that Dr. Plonk isn't the great homage to the very best of silent film. I think it is a great homage to the very best of silent comedy. And... Yeah, but even beyond the 1910 stuff, a lot of the uh, chase things, the uh, Keystone Cops type routines are very well done. They're very well coordinated and they're very well shot. Something else which I find very interesting and very dynamic about Dr. Plonk is it actually is a genuine silent film. So without spoiling it, because you actually do have a bit of sound during the film, there is some sound and dialogue in the artist. There's one line of dialogue said out loud in silent movie. There is some singing and some voices in, uh, in Tina. But in Dr. Plonk, there actually isn't any sound at all. So it's actually a genuine silent film. So it's just really interesting that in contrast, all of the other silent films we'll discuss here, and we'll go on to Lantana, and we'll go on to the artist, and we'll go on to Nevis. All of them are bringing out late 1920s, even early 1930s aesthetics, but Dr. Plunk does not. Yeah, the next film up is L'Antenna. It is a futuristic film that in many ways could perhaps be compared to, say, Metropolis. And it's different from the other films we've been talking about here, that it's not really a true silent there are actually characters that can speak or sing, but that's also what makes this so special. 
like I said, it takes place in a future world where all voices have been stolen. They've been taken away. But there is still this mystery woman who can sing. And there is still her child that can speak. And Lantenna really takes on the most impressionistic, beautiful and creative elements of silent cinema and mixes it into something else, something new. La Antenna is a beautiful love letter to the fantastical worlds depicted in the golden age of silent cinema. Homages to auteurs such as Chaplin, Lang and Méliès bring flavour to a Gilliam-esque dystopia where everyone has lost their ability to speak, apart from a mysterious lady known only as The Voice. In the story, the city's inhabitants are kept in order by a shady television company and its corrupt director, who is searching for ways to extend his control and regime. When a recently fired worker uncovers a plot to kidnap the voice and use her ability to hypnotise the city's residents, he inadvertently drags his daughter and ex-wife into a dangerous struggle to save the population from a, a terrible fate. So the Argentinian director Esteban Sapir has cleverly updated his silent film with a modern twist. People speak in line 10, the words appear on screen next to them as they would in a speech bubble in a comic book. By using an array of fonts and sizes, Sapir's concoction conveys more than just what the characters are saying and provides us with further insight into how each utterance is delivered. In their heyday, silent films included intertitles to narrate the story, and Sapir's novel idea means that the flow of his scenes isn't interrupted, but also adding to the overall charm of the picture. Underneath the enchanting presentation, you have a timely allegory for humanity's idolisation of the television set, and also a stark reminder of the evil dictatorship that brainwashed Germany when the Nazis were in power. Symbolism is used to deliver Sapir's message, and it's utilised in a subtle way, so as not to overwhelm the fantastical elements of the story, and provides food for thought alongside the enthralling adventure that ensues. This, for me, is easily my favourite of the contemporary silent films. It's such a creative piece of work that taps into the science fiction and fantastical elements that I love about cinema and updates it for modern audiences in a, a way that creates an all original piece that's really struck a chord with me. I watched La Antenna for the first time this week and I was very impressed by it. I watched it based on the recommendation from Tom and a recommendation from Adam, our producer. As Tom mentioned, what's really impressive about the film is the use of title cards. Not only that it stops the interruption of the flyby and the title cards on top of the actors, what the title cards actually do is they provide an extra bit of interaction. So there's a part where the girl's father talks about responsibility or something like that, and the girl actually looks up at the word appearing above her head. And the characters push different uh, title cards off the screen. Sometimes the title cards appear behind there or appear in front of them. That was the number one thing that really impressed me by it. I really liked the whole idea of the young girl protagonist. And she's sort of grown up in this world without voices. So when she sees her neighbor who's got a voice, it's like something almost totally new to her. Whereas compared to the adults who seem to remember a time when people weren't always talking in subtitles or talking in title cards. 
and just everything else that Tom said about vision sets, about watching things, about power and control and dictatorships, and yes, the rise of Nazism, which we do see with some of the imagery in there, is really powerful. And I found it a very engrossing tale overall and just very cleverly done and very beautifully shot. It's also worth mentioning that Argentina was also a fascist dictatorship for a fairly long time. I also really loved La Antenna, but especially because of the impressionistic visuals, the creative visuals, this really building on the best of what silent cinema could do visually. It it is fantastic. But at the same time, there was in this digital feel to some of the effects, something didn't quite die, which brought it down a little bit in my estimation. I'm just thinking back to when I first saw the film now, and it's quite a nice little story. I remember I was at college when I first saw the trailer for this film, and at the time I was kind of enamoured by the films of Michel Gondry, Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind, and The Science of Sleep, and the kind of surreal, fantastical approach that the director had taken to visualising dreams on screen. And I remember seeing the trailer for La Antenna and, and just being mesmerised by this world that had been created by Esteban Sapir. And for a while, the trailer was all that I could see. You know, this was a quite an obscure, independent Argentinian film, unlikely to get a release in mainstream cinemas in the UK. And I think that it was the first film that I actually travelled to see. I remember I had to get a train ride to a city to go and watch it because I'd watched the trailer over and over and had become fascinated with it and I couldn't wait to see it at the cinema. And there was only a handful of people in the screen and it was just a one-off screen in an art house cinema. And I absolutely loved it. And it just brings back fond memories for me. And I'm glad that everyone who seems to watch it, you know, falls in love with it as much as I have. And this brings us up to a film which shockingly brought an incredible amount of people to cinemas to see a silent film. Talking, of course, of The Artist from 2011, which, by almost pure chance, managed to enter the award circuit, become an international sensation, and win Best Picture. I love The Artist. I think it did two incredible things at the same time. The first was bring a large-scale silent to life with just incredible visuals, incredible elegance, capturing so many things I loved about classic silent drama comedies of 1920s of, say, King Vidor. It is just, it's just beautifully made. And at the same time, it also works on the meta level of wrapping up the entirety of the silent era into a broader story, a love letter to silent cinema, and a love letter to the period itself. It's such an interesting and great work, and I would love to hear your opinion of it. I share a very similar opinion of of the artist to you, Chris. You can certainly see why it's such an esteemed work, and like you, I think it's brilliant that it encompasses an era in Hollywood where silent films were fallen out of favour. And the relationship between the two leads, the on-screen chemistry, I think, is just fantastic. You've got Jean Duyardin, who his facial expressions are brilliant. He's such a suave, debonair, leading man. And then you've got the the innocence, well, the initial innocence of Berenice Spejo as Peppy Miller. And she brings a lot of light and, and life 
to the film. It did an excellent job at showcasing what silent films could accomplish when you consider the techniques that can be used today to update them. I thought it was notable that some of the most impactful scenes in the film are those that are completely silent without any music. And it was really interesting to see that those for me kind of stood out on an emotional level and for, for really being quite powerful. The Artist is a film that I sat down and rewatched last week for the first time since it came out in cinemas. I was very impressed with it at the time. It's interesting going back and looking at it because there's bits and pieces of the film that struck me as being more prominent than they actually were. So I know Tom mentioned the chemistry between the leads, and I agree that they have very good chemistry together. Their scenes together are very electric. But there's actually very little time dedicated to the budding romantic feelings between them. It's actually very much focused on Darden's rear downfall and his refusal to transition to sound. So I thought it was interesting that it was less of a romance film, I remembered. Something else which is a bit different since 2012 is that since then I've actually watched Singing in the Rain. Going back a few episodes again, we talked about films that we had avoided in one of the podcasts, and Singing in the Rain was a film that I'd been avoiding for a long time because A Clockwork Orange is one of my favourite films. Rewatching the artist with Singing in the Rain in mind, I'm not to compare and contrast them a little bit. And I don't know if the artist quite digs deeply into the whole idea of the transition from silent to sound cinema. So that part there paled a little bit in my mind, but I still thought it was an incredibly well done film. I really like how the director plays around with sound in there. Like Tom said, there's some great silent um, shots in there without any music at all. Like in the uh, downfall sections where Judardin is standing there bent over. And you can sort of see a gigantic poster of him from his heyday. Frame behind him was really good. And there's an excellent dream sequence in the artist, which comes in the middle of the picture around 30 or 35 minutes in, where he suddenly can hear sound everywhere. And that was just really cleverly done with all these accentuated sounds when he puts a glass down and the camera also starts to rock and we start to get some tilted shots in there. It's, it's a very dynamic film, and I really enjoyed watching it a second time. It's very funny at the best of times, and of course, it's got a very well-trained dog in there, performing some excellent stunt work. I think everybody fell in love with that dog. When I first saw it and saw that it did have a very well-trained dog in there, performing all these tricks and it was getting all this claim, I was like, well, why hasn't anybody seen Dr. Plonk? Because that's also got a film with a very well-trained dog in there. And it wasn't getting anywhere near so much acclaim. But, you know, I do really like both films. And they're both all-time favourites for me. And I really like the fact that, at least through my interactions on the I Check Movies forum, we've got some more people checking out films like Dr. Plonk now. Oh, I just love that that campaign for uh, Dr. Plonk. You can maybe just paste a photo of each dog next to each other and say, did you love the dog and the artist? And you're gonna love the dog in Dr. Plank. <laughs> but and it also just going back to what the artist does so well is the visual storytelling, like Tom talked about with our lead next to a poster from his glory days. It's just it just does the visual impression of the sound there are so well. And that's also what is so often missing today, and what what will be so spectacular with kind of silent film revival where we once again can see these visual first films giving us incredible experiences another visual part of the artist which i think i'll mention because it was really good 
There's a part where Judardin is sitting there drunk or drinking, and he slams down his glass on a table, and we suddenly realize that what we've been seeing is actually a reflection. It is, isn't the actual shot. It's a reflection within the uh, shining tabletop of the bar or the counter. Also going to mention that, so I'll believe it or not, just another example of the, the slick kind of visual production involved in the film and how enchanting it is. One of the other aspects that I thought was brilliant was where they used miniatures. And I think it might have been in the same scene where there's shrunken people who are coming to attack the lead. And it's things like that that, that really bring it to life and, and add a lot of charm to the I agree completely. And, and I just want to say, when I saw the artist, for the first time, I had this feeling and I thought that, wow, silent films are really blowing up again. We're going to be able to get more copycats, more people who've been inspired to make this type of film, but it didn't really happen. Now, now at first, when I saw that Nevis was coming up, I, I really thought, okay, this is the first film that's coming in on the silent wave after the artist, another large budget silent film. But that's not actually true. Like Pablo Berger, the director of Blancanieves, was genuinely infuriated when he heard that the artist was coming out. He had been planning to make the first large scale proper silent film in years. And it's also so interesting to look at the differences between these two films. The artist, like Silent Movie, is a love letter to the specific period, and more so, it tells a unique story using silent cinema language to capture the period and the character's mind and the place where he is. While Blancanieves is a genuine silent film, a genuine story using silent film aesthetic that in no way draws attention to the fact that is a silent, making it an incredibly interesting work that's also just so genuinely fantastic. It's a modern update of Snow White and the, the Seven Dwarfs. And from the opening scenes, there's just kind of this elegance and almost kind of delicate feeling to it, as you see a number of static shots of, of the uh, local where it's set. And it really draws you in from the very opening scenes. There's some incredibly impressive editing throughout the film. I was blown away with this. There's a few scenes where the editing has cuts in time with either the sound of castanets or the clicking of cameras that really made me sit up and take notice. I thought this was excellent. And, you know, it, you can tell that, as, as Chris said, this was a project that had been developed for some time. I read that it had been developed for over eight years. And you can see that with every shot. It's so beautiful. I watched Blanca Nieves for the first time last week and I really enjoyed it. Like my co-host, I was very impressed with how well it was made. I'm not sure if it's so much a modern update of Snow White as a film that references it. Like when she meets the dwarfs later on, they said she could be Snow White as in the story. The story does deflect quite a lot from it. It's actually only really the second half, I think, of the film as she's grown up, that really becomes a lot like Snow White's story. A lot of the earlier part of it, I was actually reminded a lot of a film called Amer, which is a Belgian um, horror film in three sections. And a lot of it's like that first episode there about the uh, girl in this gigantic mansion. 
where with all these mysterious places where she's not allowed to go. And I thought the silent film format worked really well for that. So it wasn't so much that the director wanted to make a contemporary silent film. It felt more to me like an artistic choice, like the best way to possibly present this girl's nightmarish world is to be able to film in the style of a silent film. Like Tom, I was also very impressed with the editing and not just the um, editing with sound, but also some of the rapid-fire editing, which is editing which wouldn't have been possible in the 1920s. Like, a lot of it reminded me, I guess, of, like, Battleship Potemkin. We didn't really see editing like that, at least in, you know, mainstream or American or UK film at that time. So that was very impressive. And also a lot of the camera work is, again, camera work that wouldn't have been possible in the 1920s. Uh, there's this wonderful shot where the father is viewing his baby for the first time and the camera pulls all the way up to a chandelier and looks down from there. And that sort of camera work I really see in films from the 1920s. So I thought it was a very good updating using that style to present a nightmare world, but also building on the possibilities within silent cinema. I think it also makes such a great comparison to what we were talking about a little bit earlier with Dr. Plunk. Blanca Nieves really just takes the best late 1920s cinema can do. Now, I, re I realize that when people think of silent cinema, they often think static shots, they often think less techniques. But there was that fantastic period towards the end when they truly mastered silence, when they truly mastered the camera, when they truly mastered how to let films breathe. I'm thinking of, you know, fantastic films like Epstein's Finisterre or, say, the brilliant Brazilian City Symphony, Lisboa, where you just have the camera flow through people's legs as water is splashing around them and you feel that urgency. Or in Finisterre, you feel the wind, you feel everything. You have this free camera, you have this strength. And Blanca Nieves really just does the exact same thing. It just opens up and brings in all of these incredible techniques intertwined with visual first storytelling and intertitles. It just makes it such a fantastic, magical experience. It's a film that genuinely showcases the possibilities of contemporary silent cinema. You know, it tries to push the boundaries and, and do new things. And it really makes me sad to think that, you know, this is the last notable silent film that we've had. And, you know, there's so much to explore out there. And I hope that, you know, we get to see more in the near future, really, because I've had so much fun visiting all these contemporary silence. I mean, you say it's the last, but technically there was one more. Granted, it was an alternative cut, which I haven't seen. I don't think any of you have seen either. Mad Max Fury Road was, in fact, cut and re-released as a silent film. And, and I, while well, I haven't seen it, that sounds really interesting because that was such a visual film as well. I haven't seen the black and white version of Mad Max Fury Road. I did know that there was a black and white version. I didn't realize the black and white version was also a silent version. It actually is available on Blu-ray and I could buy it and watch it if I really wanted to. I don't know if I would. I really love it myself the first time, but interesting to know. I've got to say that that sounds brilliant, Chris. And for curiosity's sake, I really would like to see it because it is quite a visual film. So I'd love to see how it works and, and how it plays viewing it in, in that version. With all of that said, then, and with all of us 
quite silent. There hasn't been a proper major silent film since Blancanevas. What are we actually hoping to see from silent films in the coming years? And what do you think will actually happen? I would love to see more original films such as Le Antenna and Blancanieves that, you know, just create these incredibly inventive, fantastical worlds where they set their stories, build on the visual styles of silent cinema to update it for new audiences. Love to see more filmmakers venture into silent horror. The Call of Cthulhu was a brilliant entry into this genre of silent horror cinema. So it'd be great to see more directors experiment in in that regard because I think when a horror film is done in such a way, the focus is more on the atmosphere and suspense and, and mystery. And those are elements that really appeal to me. Like Tom, I would like to see more silent films. The ones that I've been catching up on, the contemporary ones over the past couple of weeks, have been very impressive and very immersive. I think it's a really great style that can be used to very good effect, especially something like Blanca Nieve, where you're trying to do a bit of a horror film or horror mystery one in there. It's perfect for that sort of mode. But then going back to what we talked about before with why it took so long for Mel Brooks to make his silent movie, I think it's something which is going to be still hard to get funding for. I mean, the artist was nine years ago now, and we haven't really seen much in the way of silent cinema. So I don't think there's going to be really the financial argument to back it up. It's going to be those adventurous producers who are willing to sink a bit of their own money in. Maybe we need somebody like Tom Ford, who finances all of his own films out of his own pocket, to actually make another silent film for us. I agree completely with both of you that it would be great to see more silent horror films. And that's also where it's possible to get really creative on really low budgets and play around and and in that way reach a niche audience. So I hope people eventually start seeing The Call of Cthulhu and gets inspired to do similar things. Also, adding to what everyone's saying, I, I think what I would really love from contemporary silent films is just what Blancanieves did. Keep building on the fantastic visual techniques of the late 20s and keep taking it to new heights and keep giving us these kinds of stories. Unfortunately, though, I think it's really just going to be one of these two things. Either we will see really low-budget films by amateurs or people really excited to do this, or we will see a major director, likely an arthouse director, try to do something like this. And, and there, there are some people who could do it, like the hair. I, I think the first one I'm thinking about would probably be someone like Roy Anderson, who in many ways incorporates early silent aesthetic in the sense that he has one-shot scenes where everything takes place inside that frame. I think he could do some really exciting things with it. And there's a lot of other visual directors, even Pedro Almodovar, given what he was able to do and talk to her, could make a spectacular silent film. The question is just if they would want to. I would definitely watch a silent film directed by Almodovar. And what's more, I'd really love to see that silent film and talk to her actually expand into an actual film. That is something that I would go to watch. Oh yes, that would be absolutely fantastic. Just that scene drawn out into a full film with that type of aesthetic, I, I think that would be one of the most interesting films Amadover has ever done. It actually pull it off and if it would actually work. With that said, I, I think it's time to close the curtains on our contemporary silent cinema episode. Thank you for listening.
and join us again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMforum.com.